A couple quick housekeeping details. The uh, U version uh, still is messed up. If, you, if you're try, trying to track through the events section in the U version that, that has our notes, um, yeah, it won't do you that much good because they're all scrambled for some reason. They don't know why. Uh, the other thing I was going to say real quick, uh, James was going to say that he has a table out in the foyer, and he wanted me to mention that. And I give myself like two stars for that because I remembered between when he told me and when I got up here. So Five stars. Five stars. Oh, well, f- five stars. Thank you. So I was watching a British comedy the other day, and, as I am often want to do, and uh, something just hit me. It was just like a ton of bricks. It was one of those aha, kind of mind-blown experiences, you know, the kind I'm talking about. Um, I don't need to tell you the whole sitcom to give you the idea of it, but just this guy walks into his friend's house, and he's trying to cheer this guy up, and he goes, I've got Krispy Kremes. I've got Krispy Kremes. And I went, wait, what? This is a British comedy. Understand, this takes place in Britain. And he says, I've got Krispy Kremes. I said, what? I had to Google it. Like, really? Is Krispy Kremes, Krispy Kremes, UK. Turns out, you know, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, or maybe it's longer than that, Krispy Kremes tried to make an inroad into, into England, and, and uh, they put it in a really fancy place, like in London, like a big, big department store, and it caught on. And it is, I mean, the, the, the British Empire is crumbling once again, again, before the colonies. Only this time, it's that, it's that rich, you know, irresistible, warm, yeasty, mm, American donut. And uh, if you can't beat them with Cadbury eggs, then you have to join them, I guess, is sort of the moral of the story. But actually, the moral of the story is this. Uh, you know what else besides Krispy Kreme is expanding and seemingly unstoppable? I'll say Krispy Kreme's is seemingly unstoppable. This is actually unstoppable in the true sense of the word. You may know where I'm going with this by now if you're looking at your bulletin. We're talking about the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His kingdom is unstoppable. And we're looking at this in the book of Acts. Uh, We said early on, in fact, in that introductory sermon on Acts, that the book of Acts has a lot to do with the kingdom and the movement of the kingdom, the expanding of the kingdom. We have here before us today that which Brian just read. Uh, It may have sounded familiar to you. There have been three of these in the book of Acts. This is the third and final one of these, but you have these little snapshots. It's really interesting how Luke does that, but we saw it in, in 2, and I think it was 4, and now in, in chapter 5, you get these you know, four or five verses or so that just give us a big sort of panoramic overview of how the early church in Jerusalem was doing. And this time, the, in each one of those, the emphasis is a little bit different, though a lot of the details are kind of the same. But in this one, it's, it really seems to be about how the kingdom is not going to be stopped, how it is expanding. It's a runaway train. The leaders have tried, you know, the Jewish leaders have tried to shut it down, but it just will not be shut down. So here's the big idea today. Christ's kingdom triumphs through his people. Triumph was the verb I came up with um, to, to kind of encapsulate the idea of, of how the kingdom is just taking ground. It's taking ground, it's moving, it's expanding. And there's kind of two key ways of, uh, where, before we get into the individual implications of this, I just want to say, when you're dealing with the book of Acts in general, and in this passage in particular, I think, there's two ways of applying it. One is to look at its significance historically. 
in the actual events as they happen. And these speak to us and confirm our When we look at the, that church in Acts, it's just so amazing and it's so faith-confirming. So we let it encourage us on that level looking back. But then there's a sense in which, even though there are a lot of differences between where we're at now and the apostolic church, and I've, I've made mention of that and I'll continue to do so, yet there is a worthy pattern within this that I think we can aspire to. So without going any further there, we have five, five indications in the text that this kingdom really is advancing, unstoppable, triumphing. And the first of these indications is that the apostles performed incredible signs and wonders. Incredible signs and wonders. The description of, those, uh, of these is worked through the text. It's not just in one specific verse of the text. It's kind of throughout. But it's led into and summarized in that first verse, that verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hand of the apostles, and they were together in Solomon's portico. So now this is not news to us that they've been in the temple. Here we're told the actual location, Solomon's portico. We talked about that last time. And if you take all of the verses leading up to this that have mentioned it, and if you go back to Luke's gospel, at the end of Luke's gospel, we know that among other things, they were there worshiping, they were praying, the apostles were giving testimony, they were proclaiming the gospel, and they were teaching the people. In that, in that model that Jesus had given them in the last week of Jesus' life leading up to the cross, they were in the temple teaching. And now we read that there's this string of signs and wonders going on. One of those would have been the healing of the lame man, which we've looked at. You remember that? He was sitting at the gate, beautiful, and they, and they healed him. But then it's not just that. Apparently there were many signs and wonders that were done among the people. We have... For instance, in that, in that 15th verse, you've got in there where they lay sick people along the road, and they just hope that Peter will pass by and his shadow will be cast upon them. And in verse 16, we're told that, that, that the sick and the demon-possessed were brought. This was an incredible time in the life of the church. The, these signs, and it would have been a euphoric moment, a sense of just in, incredible growth and life and excitement, you can imagine. What you actually see here is the working out of what Christ had promised would, in fact, happen. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. He had told them, promised them that the Holy Spirit would come, that they were to wait when the, for the Holy Spirit to come, that the fields were white with harvest, that they would be his witnesses. He had promised that they would do greater, greater things, you know, greater miracles than he because he was going to the Father. If you look at the end of the book of Mark, how many are familiar with the end of the book of Mark, which is it's one of those disputed passages in terms of whether it was in the original and all that. You see that in your Bible when you get there. But the funny thing is the things that it talks about with regard to the church and what will happen, what his disciples will do, play out in the book of Acts, almost exactly. You, you have the healing of the sick. You have the driving out of demons all throughout the book of Acts, just as it was promised. You have the preaching of the gospel. And then when Paul gets uh, bitten by a serpent, you know, that, that, that they won't be, nothing will, they tread on serpents, nothing will harm them. Paul gets bitten by the snake on the Isle of Malta. So all of this, you see, just playing out. It ought to encourage us. History bears witness to the reality of our faith. Do you, do you see what I'm saying about that? You, you're getting the application. 
we talk about an apologetic. An apologetic is an argument that confirms to us the reality, the truthfulness of Christianity. The, one of the apologetics, besides the resurrection of Christ, which is probably the number one apologetic that we could look at, number two to that would be the explosive growth of the church. This incredible, against all persecution, all resistance, nothing can stop it. Christ said the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church. And when we see that, that should encourage us. Think about Islam. Islam has an apologetic. You know what one of the key apologetics of Islam is? We raised a bunch of armies and we conquered a lot of territory. That's what shows you Islam is supposedly the real religion. But, but what our faith says, in spite of armies arrayed against the church, this, this peaceful movement of the heart, the movement of the Holy Spirit, the signs and wonders that God did through the apostles, that led to the conquering of the then known world. Is this something, though, that we should expect in our midst? Should this happen? Should this play out that way in our midst? And I'm going to say, no, but kind of yes. So that's my firm commitment. It's no, but it's, it's, it's kind of yes. And by that, I mean there, there are aspects of this, as I've said all along, that were unique to the time of the apostles and the work of the apostles. The apostles specifically had these promises of these signs and wonders. They performed these signs and wonders. It substantiated the witness that they had to the resurrection of Christ. Paul talks about that. He's like, I'm an apostle, and the works of an apostle were done through me. We are not apostles, nor are there apostles today. And that is not altogether a bad thing. It's easy to look at that and go, oh, I wish we had apostles today, and, think, and wish that we were living in a different time. We're, we are just, in reality, living in a different time according to the providence of God. And that's not bad. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians 2. He says that of the household of God, that it is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. We don't lay the foundation again once we've built one, do we? You who are builders, if you're laying the foundation a second time, then you must be working in Kansas, right, where we have tornadoes or really bad builders, but I think it's the tornadoes, actually. Um, or you're moving a house from Broadway out to Ellenwood or whatever the case may be. But no, you don't, normally you don't lay a foundation a second time. There's no reason to do that. We don't, we don't re-crucify Christ. We don't, we don't have to redo, um, repeat the resurrection. We don't have to repeat his ascension. The work of the apostles was unique unto that time. But here's where the yes part comes in. We still have power in the church today. We still have the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we still have the work of the apostles. It's of a different sort. It operates in a different way. Look at what Paul says in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the signs and wonders I have done for the... No, I'm sorry, that's not it. Um, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So we don't need to feel ashamed that we're not apostles. That's not within the purposes of God that we have it. But we still have the apostolic gospel. And it is still a gospel which is a gospel of power. And that power is still at work and it is still expanding the kingdom even in this day. 
So it's a, it's a no, but it's, it's a kind of a yes. Next indication of this kingdom triumph is that unbelievers were afraid to go near them. None of the rest dared join them. You can kind of understand this, right? After the Ananias, how many were here last? Well, I won't have, now you, I'll embarrass the people that weren't here and were, you know, listening to a sermon from Pastor Sheets last, uh, last Sunday. But anyway, um, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira. That was a scary thing. It scared people in the church. It scared people outside of the church. And it scared a lot of people away. They were spooked by holiness. I don't know why I like saying that. It just sounds... Sounds right. They were spooked by holiness. Holiness is spooky for us as, as human beings. Holiness makes us want to back up, not approach. Think about Peter, and I, I know I've gone through this kind of before, but, but when Peter saw Jesus and, 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 he, and he was aware of who Jesus was, suddenly what did he tell him? Get away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He didn't want to have anything, you know, to, to do with that. We think about the children of Israel as Moses wanted to bring them up, you know, to Mount Sinai. And, and, and they're like, whoa, okay. You know, and there's the smoke and the fire and the rumbling. And they're like, how about you go? <laughs> how about you stand between us and God? Because it, it, it is a fearful thing. We have a natural curiosity about God. And so I think we imagine that if there was an epiphany down at, say, the courthouse in Great Bend. Seems a logical place, right, for a close encounter of the holy kind. But right there, say, just fire and cloud of smoke and rumbling and everything, and everybody's like, hey, if you go down to the courthouse, God's there. And we think, we'd like to think that we would want to run toward that, but the truth of the matter is if, if we were behaving as normal human beings, we'd want to get away from it. You think about Jesus when he healed the, the demoniac, the man with the legion of demons, and the people from the town come out, and they've heard the story about the pigs going off the cliff, and they get out there, and they see old crazy naked uh, you know, demon guy, but he's clothed in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, please leave. Just get away from us. They, they, they were spooked by that holiness. Um, here's the question. Can we expect the same? Should we expect the same? Again, slightly different situation. <laughs> slightly. We're, we are living in a different time. We are living in a, a different um, dispensation, if you will, though I'm not a dispensationalist. So I'll use that, that word. A different epoch, if you will, a different era, a different time. But uh, there is a place for a holy fear that the church should produce. I mean, project. I think people that get near the church ought to have a certain kind of fear. Think back to Jonathan Edwards. You've heard of him, right? You talk about the Great Awakening. You may have studied that in history. There's this great revival that swept the colonies, and, and a lot of it was Jonathan Edwards' work. Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield. Jonathan Edwards famously preached that sermon. You've heard about it, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he, served, he, he preached, I think, a hundred and, I don't know. I don't know the number, but it was a lot. He kept preaching that everywhere he went. And in some places, when he preached the sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the Spirit moved in such a way that the people in the congregation would start wailing just spontaneously as he's preaching. They'd start wailing, and some of them would cry out for him to stop. The first time this happened to him, apparently, it, it took him back so much that he actually did stop. Because it's like, what do you do? These people are just beside themselves with the fear of God. The preaching of the gospel is a preaching of the glorious grace and love of God through Jesus Christ. 
But it is also a preaching about sin and about a holy God who has wrath against sin. It, it preaches the ruin of sinners. I personally think that that's still for today. How do you feel about that? I don't really want to be a Gumby church. Anybody sign up to be part of a Gumby church? I know I'm old. Nobody remembers Gumby, but does anybody remember Gumby? Oh, hey, you old people. Um, <laughs> Gumby, for boys and girls, was like this claymation cartoon character, and you, but you could buy one. I think my dog ate him, but, but um, it, while he was still functional, you could twist him around a couple times unto himself, bend him backward, forward. It didn't matter. You'd go any direction you wanted him to. And too many times the church has tried to be that. It's like, well, I want to be all things to all people the way Paul talks about, so we'll just bend ourselves backward, and whatever draws a crowd, We'll just do whatever draws a crowd. And if that's smoke and mirrors and, and, and light shows and laser, whatever it takes, we just want people to come in. But I think that's a trap. I think you preach the gospel. You hold that forth. You hold out the wonderful matchless grace and the love of Jesus. But you preach sin. You preach the reality of sin and, what God, and God's wrath against sin and, and against sinners. And I believe that when that happens, that apart from a work of the Holy Spirit, the exact same kind of thing will happen that happened in the book of Acts. I think people will stay away. I don't know about this whole seeker-sensitive thing. I think genuine seekers of God, that is, those upon whom the Holy Spirit is operating, I think they will be drawn near it. It'll be approach avoidance like, oh, that's a holy place. I think I want to go near it. But, oh, but, yeah, that will happen. But, uh, but, yeah, I think if we're truly being... I think about somebody like Louis Zamperini. You know who Louis Zamperini was? The, the book Unbroken, the movie Unbroken. He was a guy that got shot down in the war. His life was very complicated. But he, he was a brave person. He was brave. He endured hardship. He endured being a prisoner of the Japanese and all kinds of different things. When he came home, he became an abject alcoholic, and his wife became a Christian and she tried to get him to go to a Billy Graham rally. And, you know, here's this, this stoic, brave guy who's endured everything. He didn't want to go anywhere near it until God worked on his heart and got him there. I think there's some of that that should still be true of the church today. The church should be, the, here's, here's the way I'd summarize it. The church should be the most threatening, peaceful assembly that exists should be the most threatening, peaceful assembly that exists. People should feel absolutely safe and utterly terrified all at the same time. And I think both of those things can actually be true at the same time. Okay, third indication here. Unbelievers held them in high esteem. Look at the second half of this verse, which shouldn't belong to the first half when you think about it. It said, but, there's one of those divine adversatives, but... The people held them in high esteem, which is totally counterintuitive to human nature. What do you want to normally do when something is frightening to you? Get away from it, uh, alternately cage it or kill it, all right? When I was growing up, um, we lived in a old Victorian home with nine-foot ceilings and a big stairway and everything, and it was haunted, but um, that's another story for another day. People, people said it was haunted. Anyway, um, usually once or twice a year, 
I don't know if it was in fall or spring or whenever, but whenever bats get to moving around, when do bats start moving around out of their hibernation? Invariably, I don't know if they came down the chimney or where they were coming from, but a bat would invade our living space. And I, I literally grew up thinking that the, dividing, the real dividing line between men and women is bats. Like that said it all. My mom was a biology teacher, a zoology teacher. She should have had no natural fear of bats because she wasn't afraid of anything. When a bat would suddenly make its presence known in, in, in our you know, front room or living room, you, I, I can't repeat what happened at that moment, but all of the women folk in my household with one accord would scream and go running to the kitchen and leave my grandfather and me there to take care of the bats, you know? And we, we kind of, all right, you know, we get the broom, we get, I'd get a tennis racket. And, and the thing was, it's like it, they were frightened. Poor little fuzzy guy had no problem with bats other than the whole rabies thing maybe. But, um, but yeah, I mean, they had to be cap- captured or, or more than likely killed because of, of, of just the sheer panic and fear of it. Isn't it remarkable that the unbelievers could both fear the church on the one hand and yet hold them in high esteem. I mean, that's, that's a miracle. That's almost as big a miracle as the signs and wonders. Can we expect the same thing today? Can we expect the world to fear the church and also esteem the church and hold it in high regard? I'll let you think about that for just a second. Well, on the one hand, this didn't even last in New Testament time. It doesn't even last through the book of Acts. It doesn't even last through like the first ten chapter, chapters of Acts. Very soon, this, this wonderful period in which both of those things could coincide ends, and, and Stephen is put to death, and, and you kind of know the rest of the story. So there's, there's a tension there. I would say today, in modern society, we, as Christians, are the bats, we frighten people. We upset people. We don't fall into line with everything that we're supposed to believe and do. And so there is a definite attempt to cage and kill, you know, on social media to kill, to put out, to extinguish Christians from the conversation. And in some places in the world, it's, it's, it's literal attempts at killing out, killing the church. What can we do? Perhaps for a season... God can grant that. I mean, he could, couldn't he? Maybe that's how we should pray. Maybe the first thing we should pray is, Lord, give us esteem in the community. I don't know. Will God answer that, that request? According to God's own providential purposes in Great Bend, Kansas, would be the answer, I think. I mean, it could be that, like in the time of Esther, you know how God moved in the heart of the king and, and, and everything went from one moment they were going to be killed to the next minute they were held in high regard. That can still happen. Maybe we should be praying that way. One thing we could do is we can make sure that as far as it depends on us that we're not giving undue reason for offense. I mean, the gospel is offensive, isn't it? To the unbeliever, the gospel, because we're, we're coming along saying you are a sinner and you deserve hell and the world hears that and do, doesn't love that, but, but at least we can do all that we can to do good to all people. It's hard to hate people when you're, when you're healing the sick and, and driving out demons. 
Maybe it's harder to hate the church, and maybe we get more of a hearing if we're deeply engaged in doing good for the community. I remember a couple years ago, um, something interesting happened, and it was a case where the church could be both hated and esteemed in the same, in the same breath. It happened in Egypt. Do you remember that church bombing in Egypt? Maybe just a few years ago, I think there were about 50 people killed or seriously wounded. And um, I remember seeing a newscast. It was an Egyptian, obviously Muslim, you know, the vast majority of people in Egypt are Muslim. This would have been a Muslim ethnic background um, newscaster. But he was broadcasting about that incident where the church was hit and the aftermath and how the Christians behaved. And he was almost in tears, this Muslim anchorman, and he was talking about how he was, he was framing it as the Egyptian Christians. You know, he was proud of the Egyptian Christians, but he's like, our Christians here in Egypt, they are so strong, and they are so good, and they are so loving, and they are so peaceful. And it was just, he was just like, just breaking down as he talked about how forgiving and strong the Christians were there after, after going through such a thing. We, we should strive to be people of integrity, we should be people of truth, we should be people who are, in one sense, meek, and yet it, it, we must preach the gospel. We preach the gospel, we stand with Christ, we let the chips fall where they will. And it could be that God will give us times where we have that regard and that esteem that really help us to communicate. Fourth indication of the triumph of Christ through his people is the, that multitudes came to faith. I like this one. <laughs> and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The kingdom of Christ here historically is, is expanding rapidly. Jesus had told his disciples the fields are white with harvest, and that's what's going on here. They're, they're preaching at Pentecost. It, it, they, it just thousands came to the Lord, and what we find out is it's continuing to happen. They, they followed the Lord. They obeyed him. The Holy Spirit came, and we see multitudes coming. And these aren't just converts either. This is not just a simple winning of people by addition. These are multipliers that are coming into the church. We just got through looking at a man by the name of Barnabas. People like that were becoming part of the church. When Stephen dies and the church is dispersed, these people are going to go to other places throughout the then known world through the Roman Empire. They're going to end up at places like Antioch, and they are going to become missionaries and mission-sending churches. The kingdom is growing here. It can't be stopped. No matter what they do, they cannot stop it. This is the, this is the Krispy Kreme church. It, it is the Krispy church. When we look back at the growth of the early church in this regard, we ought to feel a sense of confirmation. Because, again, like we talked about earlier, this, we, we see this incredible, miraculous growth. Christianity just exploded. Almost, you could almost say it exploded into into existence. It was sort of the big bang, if you will, spiritually. It just, it, and, and that should confirm our faith. Question is, can we expect the same? Do we expect the same here in Great Bend, Kansas? Sh should we? Growth still happens, doesn't it? Growth still happens. It would be faithless if we expected no growth. And the manner of growth is the same, isn't it? In one sense, it's the same. In another sense, it's different. The church 
does not grow by Christians burying other, children, uh, other Christians. We don't reproduce in terms of our families and create Christians. We create little sinners, don't we? Can I get an amen from the parental section here? We create little sinners, and then we, the, and, but we raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We share the gospel. We, we preach the gospel to them, and, and, and so on and so forth. But, but the, the way Christians are made is the same way. is through the gospel. Now, it's a little different in this sense. It is no longer sort of that, that unreached mission field that's being reached. Great Bend, Kansas is not an unreached mission field in that sense. When the pioneers came, how many are from good pioneering stock? None of you. All right. Um, I'm from a long line of pioneers myself, but it took us a long time to get to Kansas. But um, anyway, as we were moving west, those pioneers, they came to woods and prairies that had never been plowed. They had, they had never known what it meant to, to produce crops, intentional crops of, of grain and so forth. And so that's a whole different thing, isn't it? When you're cutting down woods and plowing the ground for the first time, we're still plowing and, and, or tilling or no-tilling the same ground, aren't we? So in one sense, it's, it's such a different thing, but in another sense, it's still the same thing. It's still the, the putting of seed into the ground, fertilizing it, weed, all the, all the rest that goes with that. And the gospel is going forth in kind of that same way. Pray for that. Pray for that multiplication. It, it still is happening. Maybe it doesn't go from, you know, when you go from nothing to thousands of people believing, that that's, is an amazing thing. There are a lot of believers in Great Bend, Kansas. And there are a lot of unbelievers who have made a decision that they don't believe and they're not going to be convinced, but... But there are still people in Great Bend that really haven't heard, not truly, have not heard. They've not had a Christian really, truly share with them, planting the seed, coming back, talking with them, pushing that at all. I mean, that, there is still a harvest that is, is white and ready to be harvested, and we should be praying for that. We should be seeking that. Because the kingdom of God, that's how the kingdom of God keeps going forward. It, it's not just in foreign mission fields, though. That is of critical importance, but it still happens through us. And then finally, I would say their, their influence kept expanding. All right, we've talked about the signs and, and the wonders done by the uh, hands of the apostle. There's, there's no question that God used this to attract people to the preaching of the word. Again, people were... Scared of them on the one hand, I can kind of picture this, by the way, in verse 15, that, you know, it, they're frightened on the one hand, but they, they'd get their sick people out there before Peter would come and like, you know, wait for Peter to pass by, hope that his shadow passed over them and they might be healed in that way. Um, uh, but if you, if you look at verse 16 then, it says, the people also gathered from towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Besides the very obvious fact that these signs and wonders, these healings were happening, do you notice something else in that verse that's kind of a tip-off? It's that gathering from towns around Jerusalem. You have the suburbs now, don't you? We would call them suburbs today. You know, if they could have driven from out these outer villages to they would have been suburbs. But what's happening there 
is the church's, that expansion's taking place. It's no longer just a Jerusalem central, temple central oriented thing. I mean, that's still where the church is, but the people in the surrounding areas are, are being driven in to, to take part, to hear the gospel and to bring the sick. When uh, Krispy Kreme came to the UK, they uh, started in London, as I said, but then, man, this thing became such a phenomenon, such that it finally reached Wales. I imagine it takes a long time to get to Wales with anything. You know, they're probably the last to, Wales is kind of like stuck off to itself there, but when, when Krispy Kremes came, came to Cardiff, Wales, people lined up by the hundreds for hours to, to participate in, in that event. Here we have the goodness of Christ's kingdom going out and drawing people to it. It's really a fulfillment of Acts 1.8. It's the, well, it's, it's the initial fulfilling, if you will, sort of the second or one and a half steps in Acts 1.8. It says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you see how this is playing itself out? They started in Jerusalem, and then they had that they had people literally from all over the world come to them, so that was, that was cool. In promise, it was already being fulfilled, but then you actually see those concentric rings starting to push out. Their influence is increasing. All that takes place in the book of Acts is, is really a perfect playing out of the promises of Christ to his disciples. When he said that, that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, this is, this is that working out of that. Last week in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I mentioned to you the whole leaven thing. Do you remember that? I was quoting from 1 Corinthians chapter 5 there because we we're talking about sin and the sin of Ananias and Sapphira and, and the application being that, that if you allow unrepentant sin into the church, it will work itself through. But did you know that there is another illustration concerning leaven in the scripture? that has the exact opposite implication. It's from the book of Luke, uh, among other places. I'm going to read the portion from Luke. Um, and again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So two can play at that game. Satan can use sin to infiltrate the church and to try to just spread it throughout the church and, and, and bring down the church. But on the other hand, the gospel of Christ is like leaven. And it, and it, it, it is going out, through, it, it went out through the world, then it is continuing to do so now. I think, I think we see this in our church, don't we? To some extent. This, this whole thing uh, of the way God works. We see God bringing people to us from the outer suburbs. You know, Larned. Claflin, where, where it might be. People move to Great Bend. I mean, we see that happen at the same time, don't we? Don't we? This is like an absurd question at this point. Don't we see God sending people out from us? In my opinion, way too many. And I, and I have this conversation with God that, that the flow should be a little more even-handed, but yet, I mean, this is how the church has been from the very beginning. I bet the first church... Well, I know it. You can see it. It oozes out of the pores of the passages in Acts. They loved the church at Jerusalem. Didn't, wouldn't you? Wouldn't, I mean, why would you have wanted to go anywhere? You've got the, the apostles of Christ there 
preaching from the temple. Where else would you want to be? So much so that, that for, for God's plan for the kingdom to spread, for that to take place, God had to disrupt that. God had that, that persecution had to come in such that they would be scattered and such that they would take the gospel where they were going. God has to force them to grow. Expect growth. Expect increasing influence to go out from here. And I would say, um, as a bonus point, expect it to be painful at times. It really is. It really is. But, but be encouraged. In the midst of what we're going through as a church with so many that, that are, are, are going to four corners of the earth, like Manhattan, um, that's way out there on the four... Not throwing you under the bus. I'm, I'm just... I'm just <laughs> yeah, with all of that happening and all of what... All of the, the pain that we experience in that, we have to see that God's kingdom is triumphing. God's work is not being stopped at all. It's, it's actually happening exactly as we ought to expect. So in, in a way, we, we embrace that. And we say, Lord, do, do what, what you will. And we just want to be completely adapted to that and, and live in that triumph, no matter what we're personally experiencing at, at any given moment. If you're here today and you, and you haven't come to faith in Christ, may I just say really quickly, good on you. Not that you didn't come to faith in Christ, but that you're here. Because, there, well, there's really only two possibilities there as far as I can tell. One possibility would be a bad possibility, and that would be that you've hardened yourself to the gospel. And so you can sit here and it can just go wash right over you and it doesn't mean a thing to you. That would be a bad place to be. But I would like to hope and believe that God has brought someone here today or, or, or listening um, over YouTube who um, is just that moth drawn to a flame where maybe there's a, there's a natural fear of, of, of the gospel on the one hand, but on the other hand, for, you can't explain it, but the Holy Spirit is bringing you to the, to the hearing of that gospel. And if that should be the case today, if you are hearing the gospel and you have never said yes to Jesus Christ, then I just urge you today to turn from your sin believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved and you will become part of a kingdom that will not be defeated. That kingdom is triumphing. It's been triumphing all of these centuries and it will do so and it will take ground and it will go to the peoples of the world until all have been reached and Christ will return and we will be with him forever. So I invite you, invite you to that. Let's pray. Father God, we, um, we pray right now that you would encourage our hearts with the message that you have given us from the book of Acts. The whole book is, is just s such an encouragement, Lord, but, but we look back and we look at that particular moment, that time when things were just spreading like wildfire. And, and the people, like the, the high priests and others, were trying to shut it down, and they couldn't. They just couldn't. It was, it was irresistible, and, and it broke through. It broke through those barriers. It, it broke through all the barriers of the Roman Empire, Lord, and, and, uh, and it continues to take ground today, and we get to be part of that. Thank you, Lord, that you lead us, that you lead us in triumph, even, even in times when on a, on a very just personal, 
level as a church, it, it feels like loss. And it does, Lord, and, and we, we're just human. and We can't really change that. Seeing people go is, is hurtful and sad, but, but Lord, thank you that you are in all these things, that you are building your kingdom, you are broadening it, expanding it, and, and you've invited us to be part of that. And we pray that you would even expand your kingdom by one more heart, by one more soul, even today. We ask it in Christ's name, amen.